everyone and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. Whether you're at school, sixth form, university, thinking about studying law or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers and help to make chasing down your law careers that little bit easier. everyone and welcome to a very special first episode of The Student Lawyer. My name is Stephanie and I am today's host. On today's episode I have the pleasure of speaking with Coral Hill, a leading woman in law, about the 100th year anniversary of the Sex Discrimination Act which allowed women to qualify as lawyers. December 23rd 2019 is the official date so we are celebrating the centenary but also looking forward to the future as we still haven't received gender equality yet. So Coral, thank you for joining us here today. Uh, The first question that we have is, why is it important in 2019 to mark this centenary? Well, I think it's an an interesting one to mark because it is only 100 years. But first of all, we want to record for posterity what women have done because obviously um, often history obscures the achievements of women. So we want to counter that and make sure that the uh, trailblazers are remembered and recognised. Absolutely. Um, And second, it's really to assess how far we've come. As you've said, we haven't reached equality yet. There are still issues that need addressing. So it's a moment to take stock think about what's been achieved in those hundred years and then start to think about the future. Yeah. So what was the context for the 1919 Act being passed? Well, it was a a, a very significant step, Um, but one has to remember this is very short the First World War, Uh, massive social change going on, and in fact the year before in 1918 is when pretty much universal suffrage was brought in, so all men over 21 could vote, and most women of 30 or more. So that's the context really of this act, and obviously one of the reasons that the suffragettes fought so hard for the vote uh, is once you've got representation, you can then start to influence the politicians to deal with other issues. And this is one of the key ones that they'd been working at for some time uh, to be able to access the legal profession. So the following year, they did indeed manage to present and get it through the Sex Discrimination Act for uh, the first time. So it was very exciting. Yeah. Why did the INS and TLS refuse admission if women had the appropriate education? Well, the Inns of Court and the Law Society were steeped in tradition, and the bottom line was men have always done this, so we don't see any reason to change the status quo. The battle had really been going on for about 50 years because women have been studying law and achieving very good marks, um, not always awarded their degree because the universities allowed them to come and study but didn't always award the degree. A bit bizarre. Yeah, um, like dangling a carrot in front of their faces. Yes, I mean, in fact, Oxford and Cambridge are the very last, so it's not until next year mm. that they have the, the centenary of awarding a, a degree to a woman. So I think the Inns of Court and the Law Society were both nervous about it. They didn't really know how to handle it. And uh, they just thought, let's just keep everything as it is. But there was this exceptional woman called um, Gwyneth Bebb, mm-hmm. who uh, was the one who really pushed the issue. So she applied to sit um, Law Society exams in 1912 and was refused. Uh, so she then went on to issue proceedings for a declaration. And uh, she needed the courts to agree that 
women were indeed persons, because uh, that's what's referred to in the um, Solicitors Act 1843. It talks about persons being admitted. And that didn't include women at the time? Uh, apparently not. Wow. Um, even though there was the normal clause that the masculine includes the feminine. Yeah. They said, well, we're not sure it does include you. And this went all the way to the Court of Appeal. They yeah. said, well, they've never been there before, so mm. it can't include women. So for this bizarre amount of time, we were not persons within the meaning of the Act. It's incredible, isn't it? Like, we have come such a long way in a 100 years, but just not quick enough. So although it's been going, this kind of thing has been going on for such a long amount of time, it really does surprise me that things haven't escalated to the point that they should have done. Well, I think so much of it's about cultural change rather than just what the law says. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's one of the, the key issues. So how quickly did the 1919 Act have an impact? Well, it was pretty immediate because there were a number of women who'd been trying to get admitted, uh, who had the qualifications. Uh, And in fact, someone called Helena Normanton the very next day, so she must have been really waiting with bated breath, went and applied to the um, Middle Temple uh, and was accepted. So that was the very first step to becoming a barrister. Um, It took a bit longer for people to be admitted either as a barrister or a solicitor because obviously they had to do their training. So Dr Ivy Williams was the first barrister. uh, And in fact, in 1920, Carrie Morrison was the first listed. There were four of them that were admitted on the same day. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, in fact, started at the top of Chancery Lane and they did a race to see who would be first. Did they? And Carrie Morrison <laughs> was the fastest. <laughs> so she ran down. And they did suggest reenacting that um, with Lady Hale and Mary Arden and so on. But in the end, they did Didn't. a stately walk down nice, Chancery nice. Lane. <laughs> so, did the Act help with discrimination against women? No, it, it, it really wasn't about that at all. It was just about giving them permission to um, enter the professions, become jurors and so on. So there was still rampant discrimination and you didn't need to hide it in any way. There was no need uh, to do that. So even though women were being admitted as solicitors, it wasn't until the 1950s that they bothered to put any lavatories in for them. Wow. So they were not welcome. They couldn't use the whole of the building. It was still very much of the days where the building is for the main and will create a lady's sort of drawing room, as it were. Um, so all of that was completely acceptable. Uh, and even more recently, uh, there are lots of good examples. Dame Janet, Janet Gamer, who's the ex-senior um, partner from Simmons & Simmons, as it then was, and has gone on to hold a number of very high-profile commissioner roles. She um, always rather tantalisingly said she has a letter from a, a major law firm. She will never name which one it is, but it were Applied to her saying we can't we don't want to interview you for a training contract or articles as they were called then because we are prejudiced against women wow straight out I'm um, and uh, it, you know, that's the sort of thing that was regularly dealt with. Uh, another example was in the Association of Women Solicitors London newsletter recently. Mm. We, we had various role models and stories uh, and someone called Janet um, Corker wrote her experience of having a baby in the 60s. Mm. And uh, when she told, she was very nervous and she was told the senior partner, I, I'm pregnant. Yeah. He didn't even look at her, just carried on working. And when he put his pen down, said, um, I would expect you to leave by such and such a date because it would be far too embarrassing for the clients. Off you go. And that was it. And, it, and, and even, even when I was applying um, in, in the 80s, 
it was still not it was illegal by mm. then but people would still ask you similar ask you questions about your intentions and what you want to do with your family and so on and they would never have asked a young man that so mm. it's uh, so all of that was you know certainly carrying on for and is still carrying on and i don't think this act has really impacted on that yeah that's terrifying to hear that though honestly i've always been um in businesses where I haven't experienced that, but I've known that it's gone on. So although I've heard these horror stories, it still it still shocks me. So what are the numbers like now for women qualifying? Well, they're very healthy indeed. I mean, I qualified in the 80s, and that was the first time when women were about 50-50. Um, um, and now it's more like 60 to 65%. But it doesn't show a very true picture of the profession because when I was qualifying, it was thought, and I thought, it's just a matter of time. So if you've got 50-50 coming yeah. in, then gradually those people will reach the senior positions. Yeah. But in fact, the Law Society um, issues regular updates on this, and it shows you on a, a, clearly on a graph uh, women leaving. There's an incredible rate of women leaving between five to ten years qualified. Um, and lots and lots of different reasons for that. Um, and not they don't always give the reason to the firm, right. even if they're asked. Mm -hmm. And then, as we all know, by the time you're looking at partnership, mm -hmm. the figures are really very low indeed. I mean, some law firms in the city aspire to have 20% female partners, which is pathetic. It that is. means it's 80% men, it and they're still trying to reach 20%. Yeah. I think that after 100 years, we should be well beyond 20%. Well, uh, that, that's why we need to, as another reason for remembering the centenary, seeing where the uh, the ups and the downs mm. were, what happened, why it happened, and trying to ensure that it. we deal yeah. with that in, in the future, I think, yeah. So how do, we, how do we tackle this? How do we move forward? Well, I, I, I was part of um, uh, Christina Blacklaws, the immediate past president of uh, the Law Society, had a women in law core group. And she particularly wanted this as one of her aims was to, to look at uh, this issue of um, women just not being able to progress. What, why are women leaving in these numbers and so on? And uh, she uh, introduced, she arranged for a number of round tables that we all um, use. So everybody committed to doing so many round tables and then we would hope that someone else would then do the same thing. So you might reach, each person might reach 100 people. So if you had 10 people at your round table, to discuss the issues right. um, and it was completely confidential and anonymous okay. um, but the idea was you got together decision makers and you would try and see what action plan you could come out with mm -hmm. having had a frank exchange and as you say the stories were hair-raising I would like to say a lot of it was about unconscious bias but lots of it was just blatant discrimination mm -hmm. story where stories where people overhear things or they know what's what's happened and so on uh, and this is when they're making decisions about partnership which is often when there may be competing uh, commitments in your life let's say it's children or looking after parents but yeah. so there are for men as well yeah. um, so she what Christina wanted to initiate was more awareness um, through this roundtable initiative and then t and then it produced um, a, an action plan for everybody so one of the things we 
asked people to commit to was that they would introduce unconscious bias training in their firms or their chambers mm. because it, 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 to be kind yeah. uh, let's let's assume people do want to do the right thing mm. um, and sometimes it's just they don't realize that they're discriminating against somebody they think you look too young and actually it's because they're not used to looking at a woman this of 40 people don't even realize they're doing it so some action needs to be taken to steer them into the right direction Absolutely. And there's a very famous experiment with this with um, one of the London orchestras where they wanted to try and deal with unconscious bias. And what they did was have auditions where people took off their shoes so they couldn't even hear if they were high heels and played behind curtains. And it was magical, the change. And they were really shocked. Mm. The people who were doing the auditioning had no intention to discriminate, but they were really shocked at how different the outcome was. So this is partly all the blind... Um, recruitment yeah. is all in that. It's more difficult, obviously, when you're dealing with paperwork, uh, but it's, it's in that um, vein, really. But the, so that that's just one initiative. I think networks generally are very important, and I think they're important not just for women, um, but for all people from what I would call non-standard backgrounds. So if you don't come from a lawyer background, yeah. it's really helpful to have a network to. Um, develop yourself and to understand really what the legal community is really about and how they're working. I think also we want to make sure that employers ask, I mean a general principle for diversity is ask people where they're going and create an open atmosphere so that they can say this is what I want to achieve and where what I want to do. So um, many women uh, complain that firms assume they don't want to travel, they're not prepared to work long hours etc and they will get taken off the major cases as an act of kindness Um, but it's often not what they want and often that's the high profile work that's going to get you noticed and possibly get you partnership Mm. so you mentioned uh, women's networks how important are these women's networks I think they're vital sometimes people can be very challenging about this and say if you really think that you can cut it then why do you need a a support group I think any group that suffers discrimination will be assisted by some type of support group and I I think people who think they're not necessary are not recognizing the level of challenge so there's lots of different groups that you could get involved in Um, I think they're helpful because you might just have some basic things you might think am I being a bit paranoid or is everyone does everybody experience this that sort of where you're not really sure if it's just you is it because you're a woman etc etc so it's just helpful talking those through sorts of things through I've been in situations where uh, role played over discussions particularly about pay uh, because typically they say women aren't getting paid as much because they don't ask for the pay rise Um, well that's quite a difference difficult um, conversation to negotiate Mm -hmm. and and, uh, it's helpful to do some role playing. So that sharing experience, I think also the networks um, make sure the pressure stays up. So research, um, which is what Christina Blacklaws' group was doing, um, the largest research ever. So it's a fantastic snapshot of where the profession is now. Um, and also it's going to be a launch pad for the future. It's also important because they can actually record things, so recording levels of sexism, keeping pressure up on particular chambers or firms. So, for example, um, when major city firms announce their partnerships so yeah. who, who the new partners are, I know that the Association of Women's Listers London, once one of the chairs, wrote, them, wrote to them, 
can you explain this? What's going on? Yeah. This is appalling. And they did actually come to the committee meeting yeah. and, and it called them to account and made them reflect on what they're doing to uh, deal with this. And then, of course, um, there's things like preparing responses to consultations, because often uh, a piece of legislation might be brought into effect that's that's got a really unique uh, purpose and they haven't actually thought about what the impact will be for people who need flexible working right. or for people with other uh, demands. So I think for all those reasons, networks are still absolutely critical. Yeah, it's great just to have all these presents as well, I think, just to show that women are here and they are like not sticking together, but joining together. I think the role play is a great idea as well because it gives you that confidence, um, especially if you don't have well, have family in the legal profession who might not know what these situations are like. So to have somebody there to support you and to go through these difficult situations with you, I think is fantastic. Yeah, I think it's really important because um, it's such a conservative yeah. And and for good reasons in some ways, but pe people need the support, I think. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be just from women, it can be from men as yeah. well. Yeah. Uh, as Lady Hale says, there's as many um, uh, wonderful um, male feminists as there are women who won't give you a, a hand or yeah. a pick up in some way. Um, and there are lots of firms, the larger firms in particular, who have initiated their own leadership um, groups. So they're looking after what they call the pipeline. Because the problem is when they want to make somebody a partner, they do need to be there and be ready. Mm -hmm. um, but what's been happening is lots of people have been leaving at, say, five, six, seven years. So mm -hmm. before they reach that point, yeah. often because they think it's not going to fit in with my life or I've not got a hope of um, really achieving the partnership aims that, I, that I've got. So that's about mentor asking, mentoring, uh, and then making sure that they're getting ready and getting the right work. Um, because again, sometimes it just happens, particularly in chambers, yeah. people might be just allocated work and they're not given the main murder case at the right time. Yeah. So it's about having somebody who's prepared to mentor you and, and help you through that. That's great knowing that there's that support out there for a student lawyer myself to know that these opportunities are out there with people like yourself out there nurturing people is very good to know and I think even as a student it's worth st starting to reach out and and those all the networks will welcome students you can yeah. go to the talks often they'll have a student representative on the committee and uh, I mean I was contacted by someone when she was still at school um, really this and, is fantastic oh no she was absolutely lovely student and she was doing one of those extended essays oh wow um, and she's kept in touch she's now doing a law degree um, at Nottingham I think and I know that she has already managed to build herself a network yeah. and that, that's what you want people that you can reach out because you don't want to come keep pestering the same people yeah. So if you can have a handful of people that you can mm -hmm. ask, that then you know so much the better. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm very happy to hear that there's uh, students at that you know, that age wanting to get out there and um, get involved. So what's next? Well, as I say, what, what what all the groups are thinking about now are perhaps not the next hundred years, but certainly the next ten years. Yeah. There's lots of different groups, and recently one initiative, um, which uh, was the first hundred years of women in law book, which was issued, and Katie Broomfield, who is the historian on it, and Lucinda Ackland, who's also uh, worked on that and produced podcasts, and um, that they they've worked with Spark Twenty One really for the five year period. It's a fantastic initiative. Um, 
which you can find on the website. They're compiling, first hundred years are compiling uh, a a female history of the last hundred years with lots of role models and interviews and so on. And they're going to give the entire archive to the LSE Women's Library. So it will be there for posterity. So that's that's fantastic. I think they're now assessing how do they want to carry through into the future. And I think visibility is one issue that everybody is really interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly, I've been more involved with the Association of Women's Solicitors in London. And we've been keen to have role models published on a regular basis. And also to nominate women either for honours such as OBE, etc. Or for um, uh, honorary QC because often women don't they don't tend to step forward in the same way so we've been trying to do that and my particular interest at the moment is that uh, a room in the law society called the Carrie Morrison room had to be decommissioned uh, and that was for perfectly understandable reasons they were uh, refurbishing the law society but what I would like to see is that used as an opportunity I'd like to have more rooms named after women and the the first four solicitors the pioneers would be the obvious case but I'm also concerned that the visibility of women and indeed other uh, groups that are underrepresented isn't going to be clear enough in the law society. It doesn't, re- it doesn't reflect the 21st century. Yeah. They've got lots of lovely painted portraits um, and the tradition in the past has been for presidents to commission a painting and then donate it uh, to the law society. Well, that's just not a modern way of doing things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what it means is we don't have a portrait of Christina Blacklaws from last year. Mm-hmm. We don't have one of Lucy Scott Moncrief, etc. Yeah. So I really want them to try and look at that again. Um, we hang the portraits, make sure you include women and, and indeed other groups. And we're not the only one. The Houses of Parliament are doing this. Are they? So if they can do it, everyone can Absolutely. do it. Absolutely. agree. Fantastic. Well, so the greatest benefits of having a podcast uh, like this one is having the opportunity to speak to passionate and proactive people um, and to also be able to spread the word, especially about uh, the visibility of women in law, such an important subject. So thank you for joining us here today, Coral, and making it possible. Um, I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we did recording it. Commercial awareness quizzes and interviews, head over to studentlawyer.com. If you're a student lawyer who is interested in becoming part of the team, email us at hello at studentlawyer.com.